Hi everybody, I'm Becky Webber, Operations Director and Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Lead from Tate Recruitment, and you're listening to Tate Recruitment's podcast, Everyone's Got Talent, the show that discusses critical topics affecting business and society and raises awareness of hidden talent, which is going undiscovered to help you create better and more sustainable companies and that provides great work for great people. Each month, we'll talk to experts about their work to help employers reach new talent communities and how they support job seekers in their careers. Inclusion and fairness in the workplace is not simply the right thing to do, it's the smart thing to do, and now more than ever. We hope you can join us on this educational inclusion journey. Did you know that by 2030, almost half of the UK workforce will be over 50, as predicted by the Centre for Economics and Business Research? This demographic shift is happening alongside a significant shortage of skilled workers. By 2050, our working population is expected to shrink by 25%. It's a pressing issue that demands our attention. Today, we have the privilege of discussing this topic in depth with Lindsay Simpson, CEO and founder of 55 Redefine Group. 55 Redefine Group are redefining life after 50, creating solutions for this generation to live longer and have more fulfilling lives that in turn solve business and society's greatest challenge, an aging population. Lindsay's team also conducted a groundbreaking survey titled The Unretirement Uprising, which gathered the views of over 4,000 people over 50 and made a strong case for unretirement as a choice, whilst exposing the sad reality of ageism in UK workplaces. We are excited to hear from Lindsay about the report's findings and how we can create more age-inclusive workplaces. So let's dive in. So Lindsay, thank you so much for joining me today. An absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast. So tell us a bit more about yourself and what motivated you to start 55 Redefined. Yeah, of course. Thank you, Becky. Um, well, as this is an audio podcast rather than a visual one, I will let your listeners know that I'm not actually over 50. Um, so I am 44 at the time of recording this podcast. And so I have in my head six years to combat ageism globally before I too become victim to some of the practices and poor choices that I have encountered for uh, today's 50 plus generation. My passion really comes about from my last business, uh, The Curve Group, which was a HR and recruitment outsourcer. And I had that business for 12 years and, um, and thus, you know, we hired, you know, as do you guys, obviously through your businesses, thousands of people into the marketplace where our recruiters heard on a daily basis ageist requests for talent. So we need up and coming talent, moldable, shapeable, not at the peak of their career, ninjas, you know, you name it, there was an adjective that described somebody that wasn't over 50. But the world started to change. So four years ago, RBS NatWest, um, the bank in the UK reached out to me uh, because my background is actually before that was as a banker, uh, to understand how they could target workers that understood banking and that worked in the 1990s. They had a really large regulated program of work that needed that expertise, but they just couldn't find that talent pool. Their LinkedIn profile said retired, the job boards, they weren't applying to the roles, and they were unable to hire their alumni employees because they couldn't mark their own homework. And so they rang me and said, you understand banking, you understand recruitment. Where do we find them? Where are all of these people? 
And so um, I've still got my Barclays mobile number from the 1990s. And I set about ringing ex-colleagues that I knew were long retired and I hadn't spoken to in over a decade and reminding them who I was and asking them if they wanted to come back to work as a contractor for us for six months to do this piece of work. And so the journey that we then went on, Becky, was in eight weeks, we hired 400 people out of retirement. It was old school recruitment. So telephony only, because everyone you spoke to, you had to say, you know, who else is in your phone book that you keep in contact with? Give us their name, give us their number. So we had a little small outbound telephony team. But it created two opportunities for me. The first was that we needed a job board and marketplace for this demographic to reach those employers that weren't going to waste their time. So where there were companies that genuinely wanted applications from over 50s, we could match them with candidate pools of over 50s, you know, and get rid of the dancing around handbag that happens in that recruitment process. But the second opportunity was really me listening hard to the story that these 400 over 50s told me about the fact that they changed their mind. You know, they thought they wanted to retire. And in fact, if you'd have asked them or tried to talk them out of retiring in that moment, they wouldn't have done it. There was their life's ambition was to early retire. And the earlier, the better. But they all said the same thing, that within 12 to 18 months of retiring, they realized that they'd made a huge mistake. They had got rid of the things they needed to get out of their system, such as the lay-in, the long holiday, the seeing friends, the taking up a hobby. And the reality of 30, 40 more healthy years on the planet with no purposeful activity was something that they hadn't braced themselves for because they blindly were following their parents' footsteps rather than realising that they are a different generation with a different life expectancy and a very different outlook to work. Wow. Um, absolutely. I hear this story a lot with... Um, people that have this uh, thought about retirement and it not living up to what their expectations are. And, you know, when you think about it, like 50, we're, we're midlife, we're not over the hill at 50, are we? We've got a long way to go. Um, and so um, finding people retiring at, was it 68 um, retirement age or even forced to retire before, there's a long way to go, isn't there? in terms of life expectancy as, as it is today. Was it 30 years that has been added in the last um, century? That's correct. To life expectancy? Indeed. Yeah. You know, in fact, when we um, coined our current you know, term retirement um, and the prospect of retirement and a retirement age, that was only a post-war construct. So it's only been in the last century and it was to apply for someone's last three years of their life. So typically it was to help people that had been in the war to just give them some social security to live out their final days. It was never intended to be a third of your lifespan. It was never intended to be a 30 plus year event um, that was subsidized without purposeful work and activity. Um, and so, you know, life expectancy is a tricky topic because we are unfortunately mess fed misinformation through the media. You know, so if you were to listen to what you would um, hear on the radio or read in the newspaper about life expectancy, you might think it's in its 80s or late 70s, depending on where you are listening to this podcast. But the reality is a child born today in the UK will on average live to 103. 
you know, and I'm just going to let that settle for people for a moment, but 103. And that's on average. So that's 55% of babies born today in the UK will live to 103, which means you have outliers, of course. You, of course, have people that won't reach that, that, that suffer an early demise. But you will equally have a large percentage of the population that will outlive that. And we see that now. You only have to go onto social media to people celebrating their grandparents' 105th, 108th birthday. And when you realise that we keep adding 10 healthy years to life expectancy every decade or so, you know, that's quite scary. You know, that's, if that's your grandparents, odds on you've got good genes and you can add another 10 years to that. Um, you know, and so we really have to, you know, lose this obsession with retirement kicking in in the 60th year. Um, so somewhere in the 60s and accept that actually, you know, our research tells us that 56% of that age group do not want to retire in their mid 60s and 25% never want to retire at all. You know, they want to continue to work in some guise. And I don't mean that means they carry on slogging out doing full time, whatever their work is at the moment, but they want to have more fractional employment, more flexible work and not this cliff edge of you work and then you're retired that currently exists in society. Well, something needs to change, doesn't it? And that's why I'm so glad that you're on this podcast because, um, yeah, this is this is a big thing. And talking about big things, um, the ageing population is being described as one of those rare megatrends of our era. Now, megatrend, the word megatrend isn't something that maybe is familiar to a lot of people, but could you just explain what a megatrend is and why the aging population is a megatrend? Yeah, of course. So a megatrend is something that has a global impact um, and it is a defining moment in a generation of society. So, for example, the, you know, um, the industrial era. So when we went from farming to industrial, that was a megatrend. You know, we currently have a megatrend globally around global warming. You know, that is something that is impacting the universe globally and we all have to take action. And it is exactly the same with an ageing population. There isn't a country in the world that isn't currently trending an ageing population. We are all at different levels of the spectrum. So the most aging are actually Japan and China, unsurprisingly, partly because of their diet and nutrition and partly because, you know, in China, they've had a one child policy um, a few years ago, which really impeded their birth rates. But if you look at the USA, if you look at Western Europe and if you even look in developed nations, they too, every time we improve nutrition, every time we improve healthcare, what happens is people don't have children because they have then contraception and the birth rate declines, but the nutrition and health and support mean that people then live longer. And so we're just all at different spectrums. And, 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 and how we then understand that megatrend is really important because, you know, regardless of whether you're listening to this because you're an employer or you're coming at this from a personal perspective of you yourself and how, what does this mean for you and life in general, um, it means that we have to rethink everything that we thought we already know. And it means that the people that are currently entering their 50th and 60th decades have absolutely no roadmap to follow. They are the very first generation that get the opportunity to live this new, longer, healthier life. 
And they have no pathways of how to do that, how to navigate that, what that means for them. And so really thinking, you know, if you're a company, think about how do we respond to an aging workforce right the way through to how do we change our customer products, our services, our way of supporting customers, taking into account our customers are aging at the same rate. You know, and then from a company perspective, how do we redesign, re-pivot our companies to growth, accepting the fact that the only segment of our population that's growing is the over 60 population? And so, you know, we have to really rethink stuff that has been ingrained in society and ingrained in workforce strategy for the last hundred years. Absolutely. Um, and I, I just want to ask a quick question. So is age a diversity initiative? No, it's not. It's, it's bigger than this, isn't it? <laughs> it is bigger than this. So age is a protected characteristic. Um, and so it comes with it a level of uh, ED&I scrutiny um, around the fact that you won't, you, you won't and you shouldn't discriminate on age as you say you shouldn't on sex or race and, and other protected characteristics. But none of those other protected characteristics are what you just rightly coined a mega trend. And so age, A, cuts across every diversity characteristic. So whether you are black, whether you're female, whether you're gay, you will, with luck, age. You know, that is the one defining characteristic of humans. And so it is a leveler. It's not a competing. You can't choose, well, this year we're going to focus on gender diversity or this year we're going to focus on disability. Age is the only thing that cuts across every single facet um, of diversity you look at. But it's not a HR piece and it's not just diversity because it has such an impact on every every other aspect of the business. So, you know, if, you know, I've just left to come to the record this podcast from the House of Lords. So I was at the House of Lords this morning debating the topic of where have all the work has gone. And partly that's around immigration and Brexit, but partly it is around this over 50 population and how we're tackling that data. And what's really interesting is just how we embrace the changes that this demographic need from their life and work. And the people that are in that room debating it, no one was from a HR profession. They were chairman of companies. They were lords and barons of of houses of parliament. And they were non-exec directors trying to understand how they best advise the companies and the boards that they serve around an aging population. But it certainly isn't the domain of HR. It's the domain of every business leader and every advisor to business of which recruitment is a massive talent advisor to these corporates around how they embrace and understand that topic. Absolutely. And I know that it's it's a big it's a such a big it covers so many different things and I know in previous conversations we've talked or you've referenced three C's and you have this on your website as well colleagues customers and company and that businesses should be looking at all three can you talk a bit more about this if you know to our employer audience that's listening to this right now yeah of course and and yeah the three C's is how any business in my opinion should be unpacking the topic of their age strategy so if we look at that first c which is colleague what does the impact of an aging workforce look like on my business so there's the element of how do we change our talent attraction to enable over 50s to re-enter the workforce to enable retirees to unretire and come back into paid or voluntary employment 
but also to serve the demands of that audience around what I would call truly flexible ways of working. And that isn't just it's full time or it's a bit part time, but actually it's mirroring shifts that those workers are setting themselves as to when they can work and how they work and where they work. But it's also around fractional. So I, perhaps I work three months a year and I remain retired nine months a year. And so thinking about the impact from a, a job design but it's bigger than that as well as an employer for workforce, because if you accept that you're going to have a, a chunk of your employees comfortably working into their mid-70s, then that means that you need to rethink the employee benefits that you offer to that cohort. And even down to things like healthcare. So having a healthcare policy that doesn't exclude pre-existing conditions is a significant thing for this age group. Being more proactive around wellness rather than reactive when someone has RSI, because if you're going to be doing video calls for the next 30 years, then trust me, every one of your employees is going to have an issue with back and neck and sitting. And so there's a whole area around that life cycle of how do we then retrain them? How do we bin the word early careers, for example, and accept the fact that graduates, apprentices and career shifters can be any age and not just young people. The second C is then around customer. And this is around understanding what are the wants, needs, products and services that this aging customer now require from us now and going into the future. And an example of that is mirroring. So if you're a financial services company and people are ringing your contact center to talk to you about pensions, they don't want to talk to somebody who's never got a pension, going to be years off of having a pension and is looking at a product description. They want to talk to a pensioner who understands a pension. The same if I'm getting mortgage advice. I want to speak to someone who has got a mortgage, who has been through that pain of buying a house, who knows the stress that comes with it, who has empathy and life experience. And so mirroring the demographics of your customer, and this rolls into every industry, you know, you know, we're doing a lot of work in the advertising and media sector, which is typically one of the, the youngest profiles of workforces that you see globally. But if you recognise that 75% of the wealth in the UK and in the US sits with over 50s, and so the advertising that you are designing, the adverts on TV, in the media, for streaming, are targeting this, this audience that can buy your products, then how can you design adverts if you don't have any over 50s designing the adverts for the buyer? And the result of when you get that wrong, you just have to flick on daytime TV and you'll see how wrong it can be. Or you have to flick on online and be over 50s and be bombarded by life assurance, tenor pants and stair aids and realize just how wrong they have got it in terms of targeting that audience. So it's about mirroring service and it's around developing pathways and conversations that understand the population. And then that final C is company. So looking at that lens of company processes, infrastructure, way of working, culture. So how do we educate everybody in our business around this mega trend? How do they understand what that means to them in their part of the business? And how do we get rid of ageist stereotypes that still apply? But equally, how do we change our processes around attraction or around retention or around retirement? Um, and what does that mean as a company perspective? Gosh, there's a, so much to think about, but actually you've you've articulated it so well, but there is a lot to do, isn't there? But there are so many opportunities that fall within that as well. Thank you for sharing so much wisdom there. 
Earlier on, you talked about, I mean, obviously you've attended the Houses of Parliament today. I saw your post on <clears throat> on LinkedIn, excuse me. And uh, you talked about where have all the workers gone? There is some misconceptions, some stats out there that can be a bit misleading. I would just be interested to hear where, what your view is in terms of where have all the workers gone in terms of the over 50s? Well, one of those big misconceptions is around ill health. So, and this is one that I can look at through a number of different lenses. So, you know, if I roll the clock back over 12 months ago, we did a, a different piece of research with employers to understand what was stopping them hiring over 50s. And the largest proportion of employers that said that they wouldn't hire over 50s cited ill health as the reason why not. So they thought that somebody over 50 was more likely to get ill and take long periods of absences. So that was uh, that piece of research was obviously over a year ago. So was um, just coming to the end of the pandemic, COVID pandemic, where they had all been bombarded with messages that if you're over 50, you're vulnerable, you need to shield. And so that lasting legacy is that there is a stereotype in hirers and corporate employers that thinks that this group is ill. You then overlay that with a media narrative that keeps talking about economically inactive over 50s and citing sickness as being a proportion of that. You know, and there is a big number of people over 50 who are currently economically inactive due to ill health. But the facts, because I'm a big believer in facts and not myths, if I take those two examples, the facts to an employer are that a worker over 50 is 200% less likely to take a day off work sick than a worker under 30. That's the facts. And if I look at the facts around the data that comes out from the Office of National Statistics, we know, again, this morning, um, the Institute of Fiscal Studies have analysed that data. And those over 50s that are still economically inactive and reporting ill health have been economically inactive for over five years. This is nothing to do with the pandemic. This is around a cohort of people that were five years out of work and that systemically haven't been supported back into work. And in fact, there is no increase in ill health from people post-pandemic in that age group. So sometimes, you know, facts, lies and statistics, obviously, um, is always an interesting one. But I'm a big believer that you can only run your businesses on data and and, and data is, is the truth point. And, and that is a classic example of where what we read and what we assume is actually factually incorrect. Really interesting. And I know data drives your business um, because reading your unretirement uprising report, it's full of data from very reliable sources. And there were some jaw dropping moments for me when I read your report, as I'm sure there have been for other people as well. So I'm just going to highlight a few Almost half of workers will be age 50 plus within the next two years. I know that's in the developed nations. I referenced a statistic of 47% in the UK by 2030. I mean, that's just around the corner. That isn't far away. Um, And according to the Office of National Statistics and from your report, the over 60s population will grow by 40% by 2050, which you alluded to earlier. And over that same period, the working age population will reduce by 25%. Now, with stats like these, there clearly needs to be a big shift. We know that from everything you've shared so far today. But I know that you've done some tremendous things with some businesses that are making the shift already. And 
For our audience, again, I know that they would probably really benefit hearing some of the examples of where you've been working with businesses to embrace an older workforce. Would you mind sharing maybe one or two with me? Um, you know, we're doing a lot of work in financial services at the moment, both in the banking and the wealth management sector, pivoting customer services to over 50s. So where you have people that are ringing into contact centres, they have complex queries, perhaps they're reporting a bereavement, perhaps they have um, financial difficulties, perhaps they want to understand a complex product. We are looking at how do we design roles with over 50s with a different background where they can actually have a single point of resolve on that call. So get rid of the old ways of running a contact center on call handling time and just you know getting them on and off the phone as quickly as possible, but start to treat this customer group with empathy, with life experience and mirroring the age demographic of the caller coming in. And so again, we have this unhealthy association that age equals seniority equals pay. So we think that if someone's older, then they're going to be more expensive. And again, the reality is not. 89% of over 50s will take a pay cut to change roles and do something more interesting. And so when you're hiring just even your frontline positions, be they teachers, prison officers, contact centre workers, hospitality support in hotels over Christmas, event support, whatever it may be, then there are people over 50 that would love to do those roles. The pay is secondary in terms of the drivers for them to do that work, but they don't get a look in because we assume that the role is beneath them, beneath their experience, beneath their previous pay. Wonderful example. They're eye-opening, actually, Lindsay, um, and just such great success stories that should be very inspiring, definitely, to the people that are listening to this podcast. They certainly are to me. Um, we talked about the government um, and obviously you've been at Houses of Parliament today. And obviously a few weeks ago, Jeremy Hunt, the Chancellor, unveiled a, pro- a proposed package of incentives to encourage the over 50s back into employment. However, when I think about your published report, the Unretirement Uprising and the stats that come out of that, and also at the same time, I know that the uh, Chartered Management Institute pu- report uh, published a report at the same time. It was November, I think, last year. Um, it was very clear that persuading employers to do things differently was the bigger challenge. Um, and I know that you're an activist in this area. You're lobbying in the government, which thank goodness you are. So thank you very much for that. Um, what are your views on the Chancellor's proposals and what additional decisive steps can employers take that you haven't already mentioned? Yeah, of course. Well, you know, my view of this is that to get to get forward momentum and to improve the status quo, there are actually three legs to this stool. So one of those is government, one of those is employers, but one of them is over 50 candidates themselves, you know, and everybody has to take a step forward and do something different to change where we are at the moment. Um, There is a long list in each of those categories. So I'm only going to kind of pick on a couple of what I think are most uh, impactful opportunities. So if I look at that, that government opportunity, there is definitely incentives to the individual and incentives to employers that the Chancellor could choose to take through tax. Um, and, and for example, um, you know, we've recommended that there be a reduction in national insurance employers' contributions for employers rehiring over 50s. Likewise, it is incredibly complicated in the UK 
for someone who has retired and started to draw down on their pension to return to a paid employed role. And so they end up sometimes being double taxed on that income um, or they lose the ability to continue to save for their pension because their tax free allowance drops because they've started to take pension benefits. So there is a huge amount that needs to be done around pension simplification and accepting that retirement is no longer this cliff edge of I've worked and then I've stopped. But it's going to be a 20 year program of I'm working for a bit and then I'm not working anymore. I need my pension for a bit and then not for the next six months. And that requires government intervention. Um, the bit that straddles then government employer is that there needs to be a charter, a agreed way of working around the age discrimination legislation. So it currently is a sledgehammer of a piece of legislation that employers are quite frankly scared of. And so employers don't feel that they can have any form of open and honest conversation with their employees in this age group through fear of being deemed as discriminatory. So, you know, so they need to know whether Sue in the team at 62 is here for six months, is here for a year, is here for 10 years, is never retiring or actually wants to do something different with her life or, or change roles but they can't broach that conversation. And likewise, the individual in that role, so I'm now Sue, and I'm really keen on doing something different, you know, or reducing my hours, but I feel fearful that if I put my hand above the parapet and call that out, then I'm suddenly going to be badged as, as unambitious and be on the next list of redundancies when they come through because I haven't said that I want to work full tilt, full time for another 10 years. And so this impasse where nobody can kind of put their hand up and have a adult transitionary type conversation without feeling that someone's going to sue the other person needs to be supported between government and the large employers. Um, if I then look at employers specifically, um, there is a problem of ageism in workplaces across the UK and across the developed world. That is fact. Every single research study we do, every piece of evidence, the thousands of over 50s that write to me on a weekly basis and say, and say thank you, but why still, why can't I get a job? You know, the, the 80, um, I'm just going to look at the exact percentage, but, um, but only 82% of over 50s were contacted by a recruiter or a hirer in an employer in the last 12 months. I mean, that is insane. So 82% have not been contacted by any organization to hire them when they want to work in the tightest talent market on record. So, so employers do need to educate their teams around this topic and actually have a plan that, that looks, as I say, at colleague, customer and company. And don't just think that this is just another little DNI initiative, you know, tap, tap, tap and give it to somebody in HR as a side project you know, that that is going to be a failing mission for that company. And then for the individuals themselves, they've got to put themselves out there a bit better. You know, so we're running free training at the moment on building a LinkedIn profile. And interestingly, a lot of people we speak to in this cohort are fearful of, of LinkedIn. You know, it wasn't something that existed when they was in work. It kind of has got there when perhaps they were 
less engaged with social media and the prospect of sharing your entire life, your photo, your history feels like a cyber attack waiting to happen for an over 50 um, that's been told to protect all of their details online. And so we are having to help them understand that this is a tool that they really need to embrace. But if you aren't in a business that embraces LinkedIn, you know, if you're a nurse, you're not on LinkedIn. If you're working in Asda supermarket, you're not on LinkedIn. And so that proportion of people that have never engaged with it really know nothing about it. Um, we need them to move one step forward to help with that. And I concur with that, having run a number of LinkedIn webinars myself um, through COVID and having a considerable audience on there probably over 50, um, not that I asked their age, but I would imagine, um, the, the, the sentiment's the same. It's a real fear um, of laying yourself bare, exposing yourself to risk. Um, but there is a disconnect, isn't there, between where recruiters assume the talent is and hirers and where they actually are. Where are the over 50s population in your view, Lindsay? Where can people find them? Yeah, and and, and it's, a, it's a good question, Becky, because you know, us just designing a job board and, and launching a job board, which we did two years ago, wasn't enough to get the over 50s in their droves applying for roles. Um, so we also know that 65% of over 50s won't apply for a job advert. So they'll only apply if they've been encouraged to do so. So, you know, they are not actively seeking to use the language of, you know, the recruitment industry. They are all passive candidates. And so what we have is then a life redefined platform, um, which is a consumer interest platform. So it's where over 50s come to um, see other people like them that are wanting to do something different with their life, seek out opportunities to reskill, change jobs, start a business, have a great holiday. And we interrupt their searching and patterns with content about great employers. And so, you know, when we're talking about pensions, you know, for a hire on the job board, we'll be doing a content piece around in the world of pensions, age is your superpower. You know, you, you get the product because you are the product, you're using the product, you live the product. Um, and, and so we've had to create, and I think as far as I'm aware, we're the only company that does do this, a series of nurture campaigns. And so what that means is, you know, we create content about an employer, about a role, and then rather than click apply, which they can do, they also have a button that says, I'm interested to know more. And when they click that button, we can take them through a journey. So that journey might in involve a frequently asked questions document. It might involve a Facebook Live session with the employer. It might involve um, uh, having a 10-minute conversation with a recruiter to understand more about the role. And once they've been through that nurture series, then they hit apply. And then they're engaged. But, you know, to use the analogy um, uh, that uh, of sex in this, you know, they need a little bit more foreplay. You know, they're not there as graduates that are searching the Internet and putting out thousands of applications. They kind of want to know that they're not wasting their time. They want to share their backstory around, well, this is what I can do. And I know I'm applying for a role that isn't what I used to do, but this is my reason why. And they can't get that through through an automated ATS job application. And so we have gone so automated and so efficient in our recruitment processes that we are streaming out then this population that wants just a bit more of a conversation and a bit more information before they're prepared to put themselves forward. I love that. 
I love that nurturing side. And it is so true because, I mean, all job seekers are vulnerable. They're in this state of feeling vulnerable. But then um, you add the fear of ageism and feeling that you're not, you, you're past your sell by date, you're not worthwhile. And we hear it a lot, as, as you will know, Lindsay, from working in recruitment yourself from job seekers. I mean, it's not unusual for us to pick up the phone to someone who's looking for work and say, I just need to tell you how old I am before they've even started the conversation. And obviously we're having to unravel that and build them up from, from the get go. And so the nurturing idea is just, that's just brilliant. Um, I mean, it's obvious when you think about it, but it's one of those things that's so obvious you don't think about it. So, um, well, and I have to say, I have to give credit to um, Lisa in our team, our head of um, head of marketing. Um, it's only because she's come from a completely non-recruitment background but has come from a digital sales background. You know, how do you get somebody to buy a bin? Well, you do resell adverts online and you chase them around where they're going. And when they're then shopping here, you re, you know, re, you know, represent the advert and then you give them reasons why to buy. And so she's been treating candidates as if they're people trying to buy a product, i.e., you know, that that vacancy that we want them to apply for is the product that we want them to hit buy on. You know, and I think when you shift it up to that mindset and realize that actually they are the customer, you know, the candidate is the customer here. You know, they're not the one that, you know, that needs to do all the chasing. We need to do some of the chasing of them and invite them through. Then all of a sudden it, it, it makes huge sense. And, you know, it worked phenomenally well for us. Um, you know, for, I mean, you know, we've got um, a, a again a, to be nameless, but a big market research agency um, across the UK that you will know yourself if you're walking down a high street and there's somebody with a clipboard. If they're a bit younger, you might go, "Oh, it's a charity collection. I'm going to walk really fast and just ignore them." But if it's someone who's a bit older and smiley and approachable and says this is market research, you're more inclined to stop and talk to them and give them that market research. And so, again, you know, we are helping them hire an army of market researchers across the UK because they've got loads of really valuable surveys that they need to do, but they just couldn't get them to apply for jobs. And so we've created content around why this is a great role that you can kind of choose your hours, choose your location, have great conversations, get out, meet a community of people, and they're flooding in. But when you just put a job ad up, no one applies, you know, and so it does require a little bit more legwork. And some of you might be going, why would we want to do that? You know, why is it worth all the extra hours and hard work and thinking creatively about a campaign, you know, to do that? Well, the answer is, you're not going to have any choice. <laughs> so if you think it's hard to recruit to the moment, and if you play about those statistics, that that working age population, that pool of people you are fishing in is shrinking by 25%, whilst the older demographic is growing by over 40%, then you have to get smart and you have to tap into that talent pool because it's 15 and a half million and growing. And it's the only growing segment of talent in the developed world. Yeah, we have to get with the programme, don't we? And we have to really understand those motivators and behaviours of our over 50s population. That is, you know, ringing true. And think outside the box, think unconventionally as well and put ourselves in the shoes of and maybe do a bit more 
market research around what does it really feel like when you're looking for work? What kind of things would make it better? What would what would be more helpful um, to, to give you the confidence to apply for a job and so on and so forth? I mean, such an insightful conversation. You're blowing my mind, Lindsay. You really are <laughs> making me really think differently. So we've covered a huge amount in this one podcast. And if we were to summarise, I'm going to ask you to summarise, Lindsay. <laughs> um, I'm going to say... Um, three to five things that an employer can do to ensure an age-inclusive hiring strategy. So we talk about that. Yep. What could they? What do they need to do? Okay. So the very first thing that they can do is reprogram their perceptions around age. So if they have a graduate scheme, if they have an apprentice scheme, if they have anyone called early careers, you know, reprogram that to be around all ages, but specifically think around how do we retarget an over 50s population for this type of work. The second thing that they need to do is educate their teams. So how do we make sure that everybody understands the dynamics of an aging population? How do they make sure that they understand how these people think, act, and what type of work they want to do so that we can get rid of this mismatch between you know, a, a recruiter not wanting to present a CV because the candidate's 66 and thinking I'm going to get told off or I'm going to get bounced out because this isn't top talent. And the hiring manager thinking, well, I just want top talent and look at all of this experience this person can bring to the role. But the candidate never getting a looking because we've all got perceptions which are stopping us sharing that, that form of talent. And then the third big thing that they can do is, is start to analyze your data. You know, either work with us or work with your partners or whoever it is, but, but just start digging in through to your data, particularly your recruitment data, and understand what is it like to be in over 50s applying for a job here? What do I see when I look on your careers pages on your website? Do I just see young smiley faces or do I see a mixed, mixed group of faces? You know, do I feel that I can inquire and have a conversation with you around the roles and the opportunities or do I have to just immediately submit through an applicant tracking system and an automated process so start to just put yourself in that that cohort shoes as a persona and you will immediately find areas to improve in your recruitment process brilliant and beautifully summarized there Lindsay thank you very very much um, one last question that I ask for all of our podcast guests is fast forward for the, to the future Describe what success looks like for you in 10 years' time. Mm, 10 years. Well, I've got three years and six years. Um, I don't know that I've done 10, so let me do those. So um, our mission in three years is to positively improve the opportunities for over 25 million over 50s. Um, we're currently standing at 5 million in our first 18 months of trading, so I don't think we're doing too badly, but I want to make a big dent globally. The six-year mission is selfishly mine because in six years I will be 50 years old um, and my mission is that the narrative in the media has changed so when we talk about a senior moment we mean a moment of enlightened wisdom and experience we don't mean I've forgotten my car keys um, and we we have a narrative that isn't associated with a slippery slope and downhill but actually that there is now such an exciting path of life, 50, 60, 70 years old, it is the new midlife and, and that is normalised. And then if I look at my 10-year plan, um, I would say that I would hope I've almost made myself redundant 
in the workforce position because we have had that impact globally and there is no longer an education need. Instead, what there is is an understanding around different services and products and solutions to match society rather than having to knock out stereotypes and misplaced misconceptions. Love that. And let's hope that three-year, six-year, 10-year plan all comes to fruition. Um, I know that the you know five million figure is staggering in such a short space of time. So congratulations to you and your team for doing such a great job there. It's brilliant. And thank you again, Lindsay, for all of your time, all of your wisdom, all of your encouragement that you've given to our listeners. Um, very positive and very valuable conversation that's been very thought-provoking. I'm sure, certainly for me and I'm sure for many people listening to this. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We hope that you found this discussion informative and thought-provoking, as I mentioned earlier. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing to our podcast and leaving us a review. Share it with your friends and colleagues. It's also a great way to spread the word. And of course, the biggest thank you must go to our guest, Lindsay Simpson, for sharing her valuable insights and expertise with us today. Thank you once again, Lindsay. Thank you, Becky. Delightful talking to you. Thank you. If you'd like a copy of the top tips from today's episode, please go to www.tate.co.uk forward slash podcast.